0: Hi everyone, it's Erin. Thanks for tuning back in for part two of our three-part series with Emily Sarah, exploring healthcare and the concept of shelter as it relates to our most elemental structure. If you missed part one, I'd recommend starting there, as it provides a full intro and really sets the stage for Emily's story. And here, part two picks up right where we left off, with Emily's decision to move to Los Angeles. And we dive right in as Emily describes her first conversation with a new doctor in L.A., a promising new start with renewed hope. And what follows is another series of twists and turns, from battling chemical addiction to healing and embracing a new plan, learning to forge new paths and find alternative methods where conventional modes are just not cutting it. So, without further ado, we'll dive back in. As always, thanks for listening.
1: Well, you discover... The surgeon. Yes. I go and see him, do not tell him who my doctor is. Ten minutes into my appointment at Cedars-Sinai, I told him what was happening, and he goes, your hip replacement is not connected to your femur. Something is wrong with the hip replacement. Uh, and they had taken x-rays, I th- I'm trying to remember it now, because I was still on Dilaudid at that point. hmm So that was... Months later. Months later. I don't even remember how I was getting a prescription. I think it was from my first primary surgeon. But at a
2: certain point, did they not, you know, when you were going in to see them and they thought you were trying to...
1: Uh, Yeah, I was a drug seeker. Yeah. I I found in my records later, years later, that they had written down that they thought I was a drug seeker.
2: But they continued to prescribe them anyway?
1: Yes. Just to kind of... Appease me. Wow. Yeah. And then hopefully whatever was happening, my problem would go away. Or you would find someone else to take care of it or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the surgeon, 10 minutes later, he goes, something is wrong with the hip replacement. And I have this moment of massive relief flow out. Oh my God, I can't believe it, that this is really what's happening. A few months later, I have surgery. And he said that the hip replacement Slid right out, that it was too small, and that I had a broken femur the whole time. Usually, when there's a hip replacement, you have to like kind of chisel it out because it has this porous material so that your bone kind of fills into the replacement. So there's two parts to a hip replacement. There's like the cup that it goes into, and then there's Mm -hmm. like the ball and the spike that goes down the middle of your femur. Your bone grows into the porous material Mm -hmm. that's in the shaft of the femur, and he was like. We didn't even have to chisel it out. It just fell out. It was really bad. Also, I will not go on the record for saying any of this. I'm not going to say anything against the surgeon you had in Boston. And my mom was like, what?
2: <laughs> and did he say anything else about why? I mean, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear.
1: Yeah. In the middle of my first appointment, after he told me what had happened, he goes, Who was your surgeon? And I said, it's Dr. Mm-hmm. So-and-so, who I will not mention now, who by the way, has since retired. So you guys are safe. But also, this probably wouldn't have, you know, this is just like a crapshoot situation. Well, but
2: if we're talking about things like the Larry Nasser case, yeah, you know, I know, and mean, yeah, situations like who, who where you knows? feel like, oh, I was just the one who happened to have that outlier. But the reality is if that happened and you yeah. were treated that way, then who knows?
1: Yeah, I know. It, that's actually really true. My first hip replacement surgery was in Boston and Mm -hmm. I was now in Los Angeles. So the entire across the United States, he knew exactly who I was talking about without even Googling him. He's like, yeah, had the hip replacement. I'm in the hospital. They fixed it going through that, those waves or whatever. And two residents come in and they are quote unquote checking my vitals. And they start telling me that the doctor in Boston didn't do anything wrong, that they were present during my surgery that everything looked great, he did wonderful work, and I was terrified, And so they were just harassing me. Was anyone there with you when that happened? No. You were by yourself? Yeah, my mom had stepped out. I mean, she couldn't be there every waking second. I mean, to say, there were plenty lovely doctors I came across at Cedars-Sinai. My surgeon was amazing. Yeah. He was so supportive, and he was like, oh, yeah, I totally know why you're in lots of pain. But there were just these two residents who just felt like they needed to defend this surgeon in Boston. I left Cedar and I and I was able to walk again. I had been using a cane off and on because I felt ridiculous to be using it in public spaces. People would be like, oh what's the matter with you? And you're like, I don't know. And I thought you could rock that cane. But then that's
2: a <laughs> that's a major simplification of what was going on.
1: It was weird because you do, you couldn't really explain it to people. Yeah. But everyone asked you what was the matter. Yeah, it was like, a very
2: physical Yeah,
1: it's a very physical sign. sign that something has gone amiss with you. But after my hip replacement started to get off of Delauded and then realized I could not, ironically, after being dubbed uh drug seeker by my first surgeon or my first hip replacement surgeon, not my first surgeon, that I had developed a, an addiction to Dilaudid. Thank God my mom, one of the really nice doctors at Cedar sinai she asked for his card, who was super sweet and was checking in on me constantly. And she text messaged me a picture of it and was like, please call him. Right now. Like, I think you have an opioid addiction, and that's why you can't come off of... I mean, obviously, Dilaudid, because I've been on it forever. Mm-hmm. And so I called him, and he was so unbelievable. He was like, this is what's happening. And I I know that you don't have, like, an emotional attachment to this. You don't want to destroy your life. It's a chemical an addiction now. Like, your body feels like it can't survive without it. In terms of how it was
2: affecting, like, your daily life? Well, how- there
1: comes a point where... So with opioids, you have to just keep taking more and more and more because your body becomes used to the amount that you're taking. It wasn't that I emotionally didn't want to be dealing with things and I wanted to numb my system. It's just that my body literally had a neurological chemical dependence on this medication. When I tried to take it away, my nervous system went bananas. What would happen? You get un- believable shakes you can't sleep because your your body is just like retching the whole time you itch you like i mean think about hollywood depiction of addicts you can't sit still you feel crazy in your brain like nothing makes sense
2: You realized how much that was affecting you. Were you like, okay, it's time for me to start to wean myself off of this? Yeah, and I, then I would... was like pumped because it right. makes you
1: feel like dog shit too. It changes your emotions, it makes you feel like really just crappy about yourself, numb you for a little bit, but really like depresses you at some point too. It's not a healthy way to live by any means. And like, is it expensive or were you able no, to... it's dirt cheap then? It was right, I mean, now it's actually really inexpensive as well, but it's just harder to get because of the opioid crisis that's happening. The doctor who was really wonderful and like really supportive, he explained to me the whole scenario, chemical addiction, my body needed it. So he put me on methadone. It has a long half life, which means that the drug is present in your system for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Going through the withdrawals is a lot less Difficult, Mm -hmm. although it's still really difficult. So that's why lots of times people who are on, you know, some sort of other, they have an addiction to something else, they'll be put on methadone and then that's like the transitionary drug. But then some people then get an addiction to methadone as well. So it's like a very tricky situation.
2: You know, you're going through this, but you've also just moved to LA. You're an artist that is experiencing the cities, getting settled. Yeah. What's happening
1: in that realm? I was a shut in. I tried getting out, but it was really hard physically more than anything. It wasn't even the addiction at that point. Mm -hmm. It was just that I physically could not get places. Mm -hmm. I remember I would walk to a coffee shop that was two blocks away, and that would be my event for the day. Where were you living? An interesting spot in Culver City with several other people. Which is
2: interesting, too, because... I mean, not as much now, if you look at what's happening in terms of the LA but art at scene, that but it was, time, it it was, was th- really th- the epicenter of like, where the big galleries, galleries were, were um, and everything. At yeah. that time,
1: it was still at the tail end of that, yeah. and that was only like, a couple miles away, but I couldn't drive. I couldn't walk there. It was at an arm's reach, and I still couldn't see it.
2: In the space where you were
1: living, you were also trying to bring mm-hmm. that to your space. Exactly. With pretty... Pretty, yeah. So I started a gallery at that point. Mm -hmm. So to back it up, I'm illegally living in a gallery. Figuring when you moved in, you're like, oh, it'll be fine. We'll make it work. Yeah, exactly. But I want a space where I can have a studio and then at the same time, I can be showing the work of really amazing people. Makes Um, a lot of sense. I called it the Pretty Gallery. And then shit hit the fucking fan with all this stuff. And then also (laughs) Culver City caught on to the fact that We were illegally living in a space that was not meant to be lived in. We left and moved to a proper apartment, and I realized I was just going to have to get like a studio somehow. But also at that time, just kind of getting my life back, and I was like, okay, Emily, let's simplify things. Maybe we shouldn't be living in an illegal apartment. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. When (laughs) did you feel like at the point when you left that space were you still taking methadone were you no I was
1: off of methadone okay
2: so that was kind of like the detox. My,
1: yeah. literally but it was kind of amazing I moved to this spot in Pasadena mm-hmm. the architect was a ship captain and it was called the farm ship tree house or that's what the people there called it the, everything in the inside felt like a ship we had like a little fenced in yard zucchini would sit out there with me in the sun mm-hmm. May of that year, it's my birthday. My partner and I drive up Route 1 in California to go see the Redwoods. Fucking loving life right now. Like, I'm able to finally walk again and enjoy life. brought zucchini and my partner's dog, and we... Went and saw the Redwoods, which was absolutely amazing experience. I've never seen them before. Also, as a child, is obsessed with Jurassic Park. Felt like I was kind of experiencing that for some reason. <laughs> I come back from that trip two weeks later. I'm not able to go to work which at the time I was fabricating props for the movie industry and high retail industry. Find out like a year or something later, I had West Nile virus. My doctor explains to me that I had a compromised immune system because of all the stuff that had happened before with like the hip replacement and everything, but no one had told me like, hey, don't go camping. Not even camping, majority of humans in Los Angeles have had actual exposure to West Nile virus, but nothing really happens because you're healthy. It's only the people who are deemed compromise, compromise, that they can go into a, a lot of different scenarios, but essentially your nervous system goes bananas.
2: Of course. Why would you think you couldn't go camping? You're finally like feeling yeah, good, like feeling
1: good, feeling great, working Wanting to enjoy this. Right. Like able to, I'm fabricating stuff too, using my hands, working a hard job too. It was great. Mm-hmm. Loved it. I go to the emergency room and I say, something is really wrong with me. I haven't been able to go to work for a week. God knows what I actually said because I couldn't, I had a hard time talking. I couldn't really remember where I was. I couldn't remember my name at times. That other stuff was painful before. This felt like someone was taking a molten rod and pushing it through my head. It was unbelievable, sharp, shooting pain in my body. My doctor, a year or so later, he told me it was probably encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain, and that usually people who have a compromised immune system and who go on to get full-blown West Nile virus have to be in an intensive care unit. So when you went into the emergency Mm -hmm. room, how did they manage it? A doctor who rolled his eyes at me and said that, I mean, granted, I went in there, I was like, I wasn't able to like dress myself properly. I didn't look like a normal person. So I went in there and he was like, if you're depressed, I really recommend you see a therapist. I've also experienced depression in the past, real depression, and this was not it. I went several times to the emergency room and was like begging them, please do something. I don't know what's happening. have these relapse remitting situations where I would have severe symptoms that would I would get like a flare of some sort and then it would recede for a little bit and I would be able to do some things and I'm like oh I'm doing great I'm having a great day and then
2: did you have a similar feeling to it before when you had started to question your own pain
1: yeah like, I remember talking to my mom and my sister about it. I'm like I really don't think I'm depressed and they're like Emmy you're That's not it. Mm -hmm. They're like, we believe you. Something is really happening. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I think this is kind of like the other time (laughs) when I knew something was wrong, but I'm not being taken seriously. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't figure it out. My ability to walk was really bad. My ability to talk at times was bad. To be able to tell someone the proper way of something It was very strange. Certain things would exacerbate it, like if it was a really hot day for whatever reason, which is like, it sounds bananas to me. Well, that makes sense to me, though. I feel
2: like even for someone who's healthy when it's really hot and... Your nervous system gets exacerbated. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's like the exhaustion that comes with that, and I i all feel like I'm short circuiting a little
1: bit. Yeah. And then
2: if you're, you know, there's other things that are going on, then, yeah. But
1: then it's, but then again, it was like the stress kind of of not knowing what was happening and then it was entering in, but I was collapsing and having falls so i was walking with a cane again and not able to um, withstand a day so i was working like barely anything one of my clients who i work for he's an amazing man who he owns his own graphic design firm and he throws me work Mm -hmm. thank god i had him at certain times during all of this because i could be like hey i'm having a really rough day right now Mm -hmm. and i don't know what's going on but i don't feel well and he'd be like it's cool or, like, if I'm having a great day, I'd be like, hey, do you have some work for me? And you'd be like, yeah. The majority of humans would never have that flexibility mm-hmm. or have the compassion of someone to be able to throw you stuff like that. Yeah, and able flow. to. Yeah, in Evanville. And then also the capability of doing something on the computer. Too. Right. So I started looking into disability. I started seeing a lot of doctors because I was like, something is up. I'm falling. I was bruising really easily. I was having difficulty I mean, there's a lot of undesirable things that I'm just not even going to mention here just for the sake of... I mean, you can
2: say as much or as little as you want. I mean, I think part of what is really powerful and important about your willingness to share this because there's a lot in it. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's affecting a lot of people, but I think there's so many that aren't heard in in the way that they need to be or they're not taken seriously. and. And it's not pretty. No, it's not. It's It's not not. pretty gallery.
1: It's not pretty gallery. (laughs) Oh my God.
2: And the reality too of being in that situation where you're not able to go out and work. So you are more homebound and feeling like, okay, how... How am I going to be able to communicate
1: with the world? Yeah. So part of it was that I was able to work. Thank God I had that training as a graphic designer. And I I had the flexibility of a boss. So it was twofold in that sense. But then... Also, I just found that there was a network of women Mm -hmm. exactly like me who don't get listened to and they all were online. How did you find them? Through a variety of crazy chat rooms Mm that... I shouldn't say crazy.
2: Yeah, crazy is a problematic word.
1: Crazy is a very problematic word. Like, I know we use it Well, that's what people say about women when they're sick or that, like, you can't explain something. Mm-hmm. they're crazy
2: yeah going back to deep history talking about like hysteria and, yeah hysteria yeah. and like, witches mm-hmm. and
1: witches were essentially female healers healers yeah exactly and how and then they were persecuted everyone was told that they were wrong and that they didn't know what they were doing that they should be listening to like the the proper medicine that was essentially the white man mm-hmm. right so i mean it goes way 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 back doctors at this point relapsing remitting nature to things and i'm falling a lot and i'm not able to walk i'm essentially shut in i see friends every once in a while i'm able to do a couple of social events but that's pretty much it and some doctors were like this kind of sounds like ms and to be honest i was like great do you think you felt that way because you were actually getting a
2: diagnosis Absolutely. of what, right, what would explain all these Absolutely.
1: things? Absolutely. And in these, these women that I found that I was talking to, and we became like a support system for each other. They were like, I've been diagnosed with MS, or I've been diagnosed with lupus, or I've been diagnosed with so-and-so. And they're like, I'm, I'm elated. And it's not that they want something wrong with them, but they're just like, now I can move forward in my life that I, I'm not trapped in this literal purgatory of being undiagnosed.
2: I mean, it started at the point when you were 10 years old, or you know, yes. whatever point it was when that those surgeries began. And then, I mean, even though different things had contributed to what was happening, I mean, I think that there had always been a question as to... Yeah,
1: like, why is this happening? But we don't know, but... Yeah, like why Whatever. has my immune yeah. system always
2: been compromised? <laughs> yeah. And why are these yeah, like things? Yeah, like why?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like mm. it being undiagnosed was very strange. Being Going undiagnosed. Brain, undiagnosed. Right. So like, we think you have MS. Oh, no, wait, you don't. So I had uh, MRIs of my brain. They show that I had some lesions in there, which are basically it's like tissue that something has happened in your brain, essentially, which is why it's called multiple sclerosis which is sclerosis is a scar so multiple scars but there's a very specific pattern to the lesions in your brain and mine we're not quite matching with that having said that lots of people have lesions in their brain and there's no rhyme or reason for them could have been born with it it could have just been, you know it's not like a deficiency but it's just like the makeup of your brain but then sometimes You could have a viral infection like West Nile virus or Mm -hmm. whatever and a variety of things and you can get a lesion as a result of it. But they didn't look like MS and sometimes people who have MS are actually misdiagnosed and they are diagnosed with lupus which can look very similar to MS except you can get like sun sensitivity. Lupus is extremely hard to diagnose because it has like such a large spectrum of things that... Are very odd that can be happening so I went and saw the specialist he kept saying this is a major problem and there isn't there hasn't been a lot of study that's been done for lupus patients and unfortunately that's largely because they're females Hmm. and like because they are going into clinics and saying something is really wrong with me and they're really obscure random things that are happening that look like MS as well and they don't have the proper training to deal with it and so a lot of these women are just left floundering. I hate to say it, but a lot of these women commit suicide because a lot of people who are left to deal with like this extreme pain and there's no way out of their body or someone to believe in them. Right. And I learned that when I went to the Mayo Clinic. So yes,
2: we'll definitely (laughs) talk about that. I think it's important to note when the pain of someone is, is disregarded in that way, there's this backlash that Mm-hmm. It's now happening. That... With the
1: holistic path of things. But, yeah, like
2: now trying to... But a
1: lot of that stuff is actually really beneficial, which yeah. is what I, again, I learned at Mayo Clinic. A lot of that stuff is about getting your anxiety and your tension in your body under control and how that can really help. It's not the full answer, of course, but like a combination of these, like Eastern Western medicines are actually extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, mindfulness, the concept of just paying attention to the very current moment, not catastrophizing. Instead of saying, I'm going to get in my car, it's going to be hot, and I'm going to start having brain fog, and that I'm not going to be able to drive, that already starts anxiety. It's, no, right now, I'm fine. And and just like taking on the moment, as Mm -hmm. opposed to thinking about how bad it could get.
2: Trying to figure out between MS, lupus, still inconclusive.
1: Yes. I should note that a somewhat common belief that viral infection like West Nile virus can cause like a trigger for causing MS or lupus or, you know, some of these like really neurologically debilitating diseases.
2: But that's one of the reasons I thought that might be the
1: case. Yeah, my MS specialist that I was seeing at Cedar sinai she was like, it's not 100% conclusive, but it is believed that it can, in some cases, trigger like an onset of this. And lots of times these disorders also happen to young females. Lupus, predominantly with young black females, and MS, predominantly with just young females across the board for whatever reason, they have no idea why. The lupus specialist that I was seeing was saying that it's unfortunate, and he was a white male, he was amazing. Um, Dr. Wallace, he probably was one of the contributing factors to saving my life, was that he was like, unfortunately it's because women are not studied as much, like disorders of women are just generally not studied as much. Not only is our pain not taken seriously, but then why are we not studied as much? There's no reason. Mm-hmm. We have plenty of money in this country connecting with this network
2: of women, not directly through the healthcare
1: system, but, you know, finding them online. Yeah, because we're all shut-ins. We weren't going to, like, meet up at the mall or something, you know, like, because we physically couldn't get out. So it was funny, we were a community, and this is actually pretty common, uh, I found, amongst communities that are not accepted socially, I should say. The Internet became a culture where you could really speak how you felt, and that you could really communicate with people that this was happening to across the board, especially for people who couldn't physically be out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember there was a lot of people who expressed uh, frustration of not being able to go on like the women's march, Mm -hmm. and I was one of them. I was really sick that day.
2: There's emotional supports happening there and being able to empathize with each other, but then also,
1: was there information that you were able to find and being in contact with them that was someone would be like, I have MS or they think I have MS, but we're not positive. But one of my biggest problems is that I am not able to go out in excessive heat. Mm-hmm. And like the problem is, is that I have a job that I have to get out to my car. Right. And, and it's like, great, I'm, I'm working a you know building throughout the day that has AC, thank God. But the getting from my car to the parking lot and so on and so forth is really difficult for me. Someone will reply back and say, hey, A really good solution to this is a using sun protective clothing if you have like lupus where you so you don't get these rashes all over Mm -hmm. your body and then they would talk about the importance of spf in clothing and how there's actually like some detergents that you can be putting spf in your clothes certain sunscreens are a total joke and i learned excessive amounts about sunscreen during this period too so anyways the culture the uh, culture online, they, they provided a lot of solutions. Like we all recognized that we were not doctors. You need to be diagnosed by a doctor in order to have legitimate MS, even though some things seem like they're really, really real. Like lots of people think you go on these chat rooms online. People think that like, they're just a bunch of whining bitches really. A lot of it that I came across was first of all, emotional support. It's okay. I, I know exactly what you're feeling about and what you're feeling is legitimate. Just because you have it, you don't have a diagnosis, doesn't mean that it's not happening.
2: It reminds me of projects like you know we have talked about Simone Lee and exactly. the waiting room. Oh um, my god! Which was a show that she had at the New Museum recently, but yes, in two thousand sixteen. Ba- yes, but was based upon part of it. At least was based upon an earlier project that she did in Bed-Stuy, which was a clinic that was founded to allow people in the neighborhood to kind of take their healthcare into their that, own hands more into their like own
1: holistic hands. approach to it and acknowledging the fact that it was based it was based around a woman that went to an emergency room a black woman mm-hmm. and developed a blood clot in her legs because she was waiting for over 24 hours
2: i her name i believe was esmond green yes i think yeah i think it's important to say her name absolutely and then but that in turn like inspired an investigation into the hospital
1: and mm-hmm. determined that there had been very negligent Care And not only that, but certain caretakers and certain doctors were going back on their reports and trying to cover up their tracks. But having said that, we have an overwhelmed medical system. It's systemic. It's, there's a, many multiple points that lead to this. But regardless, Simone Lee, mm-hmm. I think that's a phenomenal piece. And it's re- it's really important to create a dialogue, not just a bunch of newspaper articles coming out saying... This person died because they were in a waiting room for 24 hours. And Mm -hmm. then that's all that's happened, Mm -hmm. you know, that we actually cross platforms and engage in different audiences to really talk about this and to really get people to think about things differently.
2: And the part of that show, you know, there was a whole schedule extensive, like over the course of a summer Mm -hmm. that included... Like I went to an afro centering class mm-hmm. that was amazing that incorporated you know movement and dance and I'm
1: so jealous you live in New York City uh well you'll you
2: know be there you come I'm coming pros <laughs> <laughs> and cons right in New York and of Richmond you know the way that we are able to access alternative kinds of care or the reality of the digital realm being able to connect with people where it doesn't matter what you're
1: you are location is whatever works for your identity or what you're physically capable of accomplishing Mm -hmm. so this is why it's important to have all these different platforms to fill these needs so for some people it might be understanding and seeing that a museum is behind like the new museum is saying this is something we need to talk about right now mm-hmm. and that people really engage with that and then all of a sudden they have a greater respect for a that a woman lost her life needlessly and then was also improperly treated you mean in terms of the way her family was compensated for her right. death it was insane mm-hmm.
0: Okay, all part two admittedly ends on a somber note but i think it's important to leave it here for the moment stay tuned for the third and final part of this series bringing emily's story into the present with a new sense of balance and shelter is proudly and independently produced in new york city this interview was recorded in february 2018 with emily sarah and her puppy olive in richmond virginia our music was contributed by Pascal Tremel. Find more information at erinsweeniestudio.com shelter, including links related to our conversation and the Affordable Care Act. If you have questions or things you'd like to hear more about, I'd love to hear from you. Until next time.
1: Okay. <laughs> One more time. One more time.